Well, good morning. This has probably got more moving parts of probably any service for the whole year. Uh, and if you notice, I came out and I was wearing white at the beginning because we're celebrating uh, Palm Sunday, but then we've already moved into the Passion, of course, the telling of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so if you notice, there's the change uh, in the, even in the stoles, that, that everything in the services is uh, beginning to shift as we're now focusing into Holy Week. Uh, if you came a moment late and you didn't get a cross, they'll be here. When you come to take communion, please take one. Uh, and uh, again, if you need to take one or something, there's not that many left, which is good. We have a lot of kids and stuff. But on the other hand, uh, we do want to make sure everyone gets one. Uh, so let's talk just for a second about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, of course, uh, we're celebrating Jesus' triumphal entry, but it's kind of a, a little bit of a donkey kick in, in this sense, and that is that uh, part of the whole thing about Palm Sunday is the, the fickleness of us as human beings. I mean, imagine that everybody can get caught up in the spirit of things and see Jesus, get a glimpse of Jesus, and say, Hosanna, God save us now. Hosanna in the highest, and, and be all on board on Sunday, but by Thursday and Friday saying, crucify him, crucify him. So the church and the liturgy has sort of brought us in. We're singing Hosanna, but, but the whole reading and the whole setup of this Sunday is for us to remember that just as those people could be very fickle. I mean, everybody wants uh, to be with a winner when it looks like things are good. Everybody wants to be there when there's healings and blessings, but when there's suffering and difficulty. You know, we, we want the, the crown, but we don't always want to participate with Jesus in the cross. And in life, uh, of course, there's joy, but there's also sadness and grief and pain. And, and uh, Jesus knew these things, and, and the people in the Bible knew these things, and we know these things. And so... Uh, it's so funny. The older I get, I, I, maybe it's just a bad sign. I tell you this a lot, but you know, when I was young, I thought, oh, those crazy people that could be fickle. And then I realized as I get older, oh, I can be fickle too. I can like the good things and the blessings, but not uh, be as faithful and uh, have my heart there with him on the bad days. Uh, and I can be tested. And as a good friend of mine likes to say, when the flame gets turned up, we all flinch. We all flinch. And, and uh, some of us, we don't know just because we haven't been we haven't lived long enough in life to experience some of the great heartaches and pains, but for those who have experienced great losses and divorces and losing children and spouses and parents, and uh, there's an awful lot of pain uh, in this world. Uh, there's so many other things. And uh, we're so fortunate that our God understands uh, and that he's with us in these things. Uh, so Palm Sunday, the fickleness of the... We want to, I mean, hey, Hosanna the highest... You know, put your cross in your car, whatever, you know, uh, focus on it this year. Let it be a great year of Jesus' crucifixion triumph. But remember that the cross stares at us to remind us how easy it is uh, to be fickle, to look at it only into those things that sort of benefit us rather than help us to follow the spirituality in the way of Jesus in and through pain. You see, the Father never rescued Jesus from the pain. He took him and was faithful to him in and through it. That's a very different kind of spirituality. Uh, not just God rescue me, get me out of this, but God walk with me through it. I mean, if it be thy will, you know, let this cup pass from me, right? But if it be thy will, if not, so meaning there are times, sure, I pray, Lord, rescue me. Rescue me is always option one. It's okay to pray, rescue me, deliver me. But if it's your will, somehow your glory is going to come in me learning and walking closer to you in this pain then uh, help me to walk faithfully uh, and close to you, to find you in the darkness, 
You know, I think one of the deepest seasons of spirituality happened right after I was, uh, I mean, Susie's cancer was really big. She's had three, but the first one was really, really rough. But, but uh, just after I was consecrated bishop, so many bad things happened. And uh, I, I was really thinking, you know, hey, this is really going to be it. This is going to be this great thing. And I, I don't think I've ever experienced as much personal rejection by friends and people that I knew prior to that as I did until after that time. Uh, and it was one of the hardest seasons. And uh, for the first time in my life, you know, I don't know, it was this uh, nine years ago or something. First time in my life, I said, okay, Lord, I'm not going to ask you merely to rescue me. Now, I had done that for a while and it wasn't working. Uh, so I mean, that was still plan A. But, but I got to the place to say, okay, Lord, uh, whatever it takes to, for you to glorify yourself in the biggest possible way, do that do that. And, and, and something very beautiful, it didn't get easier, but something very, very beautiful happened in these places of darkness and pain. Uh, we can find him there. Uh, and you can't really move on deeply with God until you can be utterly still in the darkness and wait for his hand. His hand's there in the darkness. And when you can find his hand in the darkness, in a sense, let him hold on to you, quit squirming, then some very profound things can happen in the spiritual life. So this morning I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about Psalm 22. Um, Bobby the Magician is back there, going to put it up on the screen, I believe. Bobby? It's like the play where the person's not coming out. Hark thou, Bobby. Oh boy, let down once again. All right, I'm kidding. If you have your Bibles or your... Look at this, Bobby. How could I doubt you? How could I doubt him? Yeah, all right. Okay. Now, what you don't know is he already had Psalm 22 ready, and I said, I said and every Sunday I do New King James. And I go, oh, and by the way, it's New Revised Standard this time. And he just looked down. And so that's why he's been working, uh, because I changed the, uh, uh, the, the translation for this morning. All right. So... This psalm is written by David in a time of great darkness and pain. He a lot. Remember, Saul, the father that he, you know, his father rejected. David's father rejected him. Remember, all his brothers were dark and Mediterranean looking, but David, the baby, he was fair-skinned, right? He was ruddy. He had red hair. He did not look like the other brothers. And probably, we believe, that David's father did not believe for sure he was his son. Uh, and so there's a good chance that part of the reason his father didn't bring him when Samuel came and everything was because he thought, I'm not sure he's really my kid. Uh, because he looked completely, he was short, diff, completely different than his brothers. All right, so he experienced great rejection. Then he has Saul, and he does all these heroic things and exploits with Saul, but then Saul gets jealous of him. And so the, 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 the guy that he believed in, and he had these you know, great things, killed Goliath as his champion, did all these great things. But in his successes, Saul turns against him as well and wants to kill him. But then he had many other experiences while he was being chased from his life for 17-something years, uh, you know, where, where David just went upon thing after you think it can't get any worse for David, and then it did. All right. And then of course he had the heroic failure of his adultery uh, with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, of which he was responsible, uh, the death of the child from that relationship. I mean, it just and then you know, he was forgiven. I mean, but, but a lot of pain in his life. Now, Jesus on the cross, we said this morning, Father, oh, um, now I'm getting my, my thing up. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He said, why could Jesus say that to the Father? 
And what we need to understand is that Jesus was quoting that from within a context of his prayer life. Jesus prayed the scriptures. And so Psalm 22 was a very familiar psalm to the people of Jesus' day. And he almost certainly had it memorized and had been praying through it. He structured his own interpretation of his own experience through this particular psalm. And so when you read this, you'll notice that Matthew and Luke and others quote various pieces of this psalm and put it in the story of the crucifixion, meaning it becomes a kind of outline for us to understand what Jesus was going through. All right? So we have the first level of interpretation of Psalm 22 is understanding David went through this horrific betrayals and pain and enemies and physical things. He went through all those things. But it was there also prophetically to be filled primarily and then in its fullest way in the life of Jesus. But it also speaks to us because some of these things and these pain and the darkness that people go through, they're also common to us. And so it would help us also uh, to be able to remember and to pray through these kind of passages, my computer's acting up, uh, 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 to pray through these kind of passages, passages to help us to understand and interpret our stories and what's going on in us. I have found great comfort to realize, you know, I taught Old Testament for some years uh, at Santa Fe, and as I was teaching, I, there was all these things I realized in church, we only looked at the, the happy stories from the Old Testament. We hadn't looked at all the painful stories, and we looked at all the times when Abraham had faith. We didn't look at all the time that Abraham sinned and messed up, and, and, and I found incredible comfort to realize just how broken and imperfect all these champions of the Old Testament were, and the New Testament, by the way, because I realized, oh, they're like me. I, I, I didn't relate to Abraham and his great faith, but I can relate to Abraham in his fear and in his uh, betrayal of his spouse. I mean, he's always thinking that Sarah's going to be stolen from him. He's got to look for his own skin. I mean, the weaknesses of these people in the Old Testament, you say, ah, I, I get it. I, I really relate to that. I, I understand. So here's this structure. Let's look at it. First of all, let me remind you that there are, out of 150 psalms, 50 of them are psalms of lament, and that's psalms of painful prayer. Psalms in which people, David and others, say to God, basically, look, we're completely confused and befuddled. We're following you. We're trying to live for you. But instead of things going good, they're going horrible. I mean, our grass is dying. It's brown. But the neighbor who's evil and wicked, their grass is looking great. I'm driving an old car, and it's breaking down, and they're driving a Mercedes. I mean, all these kind of things of which... David and the other writers are saying, hey, things, when you follow God, and he's the living God and the most powerful God, you're expecting that everything's going to go well. And there are many promises in Scripture to that effect. And yet, there are many examples where God calls his people to trust him in the darkness and in the meantime. And, and so 50 of 150 psalms are psalms of lament, are painful prayer. Uh, I, I think this is one of the things the church is really missing I think we'll see more psalms and, you know, the, all the modern praise music. I think we're going to find some people that are going to start writing uh, new music that's all going to be about lament because there's something about the transparency of lament where we're honest with God and we tell them how we're struggling and our confusion and our fears that God loves, meaning when we can be real with him in these dark places, he understands uh, and he cares for us and he comes close and he meets us in these painful and dark places. And when the church begins to worship, even in acknowledging that everything isn't always hunky-dory, you know, we don't want to be these plastic people, Jesus, that pretend like everything's always easy or nice or everyone's always getting a promotion or everyone's always getting healed. Look, we believe in healing. We know the power of God. But sometimes the most faithful, wonderful people really struggle. 
Uh, you know, we really go through it. Uh, we're, we're very weak and broken, and apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not going to make it. And, and, and when a church begins, even as a worshiping community, to, to sing the songs of lament, we would be far more healthy uh, than we are. All right, Psalm 22, verse 1. Well, okay, excuse me. 50% of, uh, not 50%, 50 out of 150 songs of lament. Now, this psalm is structured in two parts. 1 to 21 is the lament, all right? And then 22 to 31 is the praise. One of the things that happens, and you can't see the whole thing yet, but if you can look in your Bible or your phone, but what happens is in the Psalms of Lament, when, when people begin to bear their soul and be transparent that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and they, they bring these things into God's presence, the Holy Spirit begins to interact with them, and then the shift comes as they begin to believe and see and remember the promises of God, and begin to truly believe them in a way in which they could not naturally because the solution or the breakthrough hasn't happened. But God has begun to move upon their heart to enable them to believe in God even when the solution or the deliverance has not actually been experienced yet. All right, so this is powerful, powerful stuff. So first 21 verses is the lament. And each of the two sections, the 22 to 31, is the praise. Each of those two major sections are divided into two parts. So the first part is from verse 1 to 11 is uh, David's writing about his feelings of abandonment and being far from God. And then from 12 to 21, it's about the enemies, the people who've come against him. So the lament is the absence of feeling absent from God and, and being forsaken by God. And then it's all the things that have happened in physical pain, emotional pain. Uh, then he gets into the praise part. In the praise part, before his answer comes, he can feel it. The Spirit's quickening him, and he, and, and he, can know, he knows supernaturally that God is going to answer. It comes upon him like an anointing. Some of us, you know, what, you know what it feels like, where you know before anything's changed, but you know it's going to change because the Holy Spirit's beginning to transform your heart about it, and you know the breakthrough's already there. Even when you haven't seen it with your eyes, you know that you will. So David starts to do, do that and experience that in the context of his brothers and sisters in the worshiping community. Meaning he begins, it's in the worship of the congregation, he says, something happened, it broke off of me, I can see it, I can feel it, I can taste it. And he begins to proclaim it and even start to preach to other people before he has his answer. And then he says, after talking about and experiencing God's presence in his worship in the congregation, all of a sudden... David sees the implications prophetically for all those who have died before, for all those who are coming and going to go in the future, and for all the nations of the earth. David begins to see uh, the implications of God's deliverance and salvation and how it's going to affect all of history before him and after him. Now, the three last little things before we start, then we're going to just read through it. I've given you kind of all my points. You'll be happy to know that. All right? Kind of. Um, Jesus, I mean, uh, David deals with physical enemies. People that really hated him, trying to kill him. I mean, he had people really, truly trying to kill him. Some of you have been, you've been hated by people for no good reason. You've experienced tremendous heartache and pain and broken hearts and broken relationships. I mean, really terrible stuff. He also experienced tremendous physical pain. It's as if the emotional heartache of his life expressed itself in very physical ways and could only be described in the context of physical pain manifesting on the external body what was happening internally in his emotions. 
But by far, the greatest pain that he experienced was the sense of God being far from him. And there's nothing worse uh, to go through a situation, whether it be cancer, divorce, or, or to have that lie of the enemy which always comes in these places that we brought it upon ourselves and God is away from us and he won't forgive us and he won't restore us. And of course, that's the lie of the enemy. And it takes sometimes a lot of fighting uh, to, to break through there and to hear God's voice of uh, restoration, forgiveness. I mean, sometimes we have gotten in these spots by our own actions, but whether it's our fault or someone else's fault or whether we can distinguish it or not, whose fault it is, it's not about the blame. The cross means we can come to God and he will run to us through the cross of Jesus Christ, no matter how we got where we are, all right? But that can take a battle. Our minds can know it long before our hearts uh, can feel the freedom of being unshackled by that uh, in, our, in our hearts and our, our deepest feelings. Uh, sometimes we're not even, I haven't even known some of these things until it got better. I didn't realize how much I was struggling with various things until the release and the blessing came. I didn't realize how much uh, grief I was carrying. All right. So quoted today, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus quotes this uh, as a means of interpreting the crucifixion in the context of the full Psalm. It is no less, Jesus is no less experiencing truly being forsaken on the cross. Now, this is a mystery. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. In some sense, how could the Father turn against himself? They shared one essence, even though there's three personalities. That is a mystery. No one has a great answer for that. Other than that, in some real way, when Jesus bore our sins on the cross, when he experienced the wrath of God, in some real way, he experienced it for a moment that, that being forsaken by the Father. And that was the greatest and darkest heartache that could ever happen in the universe. In fact, it assumes all the other, comprehends all the other pain and heartache of the whole universe and all the existence of all the people and everything else. It, he, he comprehended it in that moment. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was at that moment the victory came, by the way. The victory for everything in the life of Jesus and for us happened at the moment he said, it is finished. His death and the implications of his death and resurrection are, in fact, just implications of what it means that Jesus experiences things for us, and yet those things could not hold him down. Okay? When, when death encountered Jesus, a resurrection was coming. Okay? But everything that matters happened at it is finished. At that instant, uh, all the good was poured out for us. It just got worked out in time and space as he uh, preached the gospel to those who had gone on before. Uh, and then he experienced the power of the resurrection and, and then the ascension. All things are going on for all eternity. Everything that matters happened at the cross. So Jesus quotes this from David, but he, again, he is interpreting his feelings of abandonment within the context of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? For the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Some of us, we, we've, we've, we've lived this for months and months. Jesus can understand. Jesus can be with you in it because he went through it just like David did. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises. Listen, one of the secrets of prayer in the darkness is to remember the blessings that you knew in the light. Recounting the blessings and things that you can remember on the good days are the only things that can steady us 
in those moments of abandonment and feeling so far from God and rejected. So David begins to recount the times when he knows the goodness of God. Yet you're holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. He's, got, he's rehearsing to himself those things that he knows. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a human, scorned by others and despised by the people. This is what David's going through. Jesus is framing the grief and the agony of what he's going through as well. All who see me mock at me. Some of us know the shame of people bad-mouthing us because of divorces or terrible things that happened and people thinking we brought it ourselves. Or all, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me. They shake their heads, wag their heads, what we read in the King James. Eight, commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. So with all this feeling of how far God is, at the same time, it's my God. Okay, it's my God. He keeps going back to my God. He reminds us of God's faithfulness to his family, to him, and even at the point of his birth, he recounts and remembers. Waiting, he's kind of treading water until the life preserver comes. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Now, that's his thing about feeling so estranged from God in his darkness. Again, Jesus is quoting that within this context. He is feeling no less but even more estrangement from the Father than David was feeling in the psalm. But again, Jesus quotes this within this parameters. Notice that verse 7 about the wagging of the heads, that's quoted within the very story that we read in Matthew. These are very much structuring the, even the lives, uh, the minds of the disciples in the church as they interpreted Jesus' crucifixion. Now he talks about his enemies. Uh, now these are talking about animals, but these animals are people. You can imagine the people we know who might be described as such. Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. We had a neighbor go off this week. Uh, she's not real stable at times. But she cussed out five or six people. and We could hear her just losing it. She lost it on Susie twice. Someone trimmed a hedge. And I don't, I mean, we don't even know how many people. But it was like a ravening lion. And you're like, oh my gosh. When that spirit that comes on her, it is not pleasant to be around. I am poured out like water. The idea here is he's cried so much, it's as if all the fluid of his body is out of him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Some of you know what it's like to get a shoulder out or a hip or... Uh, my heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, a piece of dry pottery. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled. Now in the Septuagint it says, they have pierced my hands and feet. So that's part of how we know that the writers of the Gospel of Matthew and, and Luke were not using the Septuagint, but the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Because if they were, they surely would have made this connection with the idea of him being pierced in his hands and his feet. 
but it's quoted differently in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament. So, uh, my hands and my feet have shriveled. I count all my bones. I can't imagine, but imagine being so skinny you could just count all the bones. He's wasted away in such a way, Davis. I've wasted away in all this stress and everything that you can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. This is quoted again in Matthew. Uh, They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my help. Now here he starts to ask declarative things. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. And all of a sudden, as he's asking for that kind of deliverance, the shift comes. All of a sudden, the Spirit comes upon David, and he can believe and have faith. You know, faith can be a gift. You know, we, we're given a saving faith, but, and we hold on to it, but, but then we strengthen faith, comes as a gift. I don't know if you ask for it, but I say, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith, right? He, he gets the gift, the Spirit comes, and all of a sudden, he can feel the deliverance even in his present pain. It hasn't got there, but he can feel it. He knows it in his bones as well. So now he goes and begins to praise in the congregation, meaning this revelation happens within the context context of public worship with his brothers and sisters. Look at this. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the middle or the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Now he's starting to preach. I mean, he was so low, but it began to switch. And now he's, he's talking about praising the Lord and giving his testimony when the answer hasn't come. Not only that, he's starting to preach a sermon. Some people do that. They'll get up for a testimony, now they start preaching a sermon. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All ye offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all ye offspring of Israel. 24, for he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. This is the part of the psalm that Jesus was holding on to. It was unspoken but clearly known. Jesus knew that the purposes and plans of the cross, he tells us over and over, that the Father's purpose was that he was going to die. And he was coming back again. And he knew the Father would not despise the affliction of the afflicted. Meaning that God would value and honor what he went through, not turn away or disqualify him for the pain that he went through. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard me when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. That's a pretty big change of feeling in that. Now he gets a glimpse of all of history, being taken up in the victory that he's experiencing in his life. All the ends of the earth, so now it's been the congregation of him, now it's everybody. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him indeed, all who sleep in the earth bow down. Meaning all those who've gone before me and died, worship him because you're still around. Right? Remember, God is the God of the living and not the dead. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living and not the dead. All are alive to God, Matthew writes, quoting Jesus. Because those who have gone to sleep in the earth mean that they died. Worship him. Worship him. And I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Do you realize that we're here even this morning as a fulfillment of Psalm 22? 
We're passing it on to our kids. It was passed on to us. And proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. All right. Jesus says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken? Why have you forsaken me? And the greatest thing, why does he say it? Number one, because he really felt it. He really knew for an instant absolutely being forsaken from the Father. How did that work? I don't know. We understand according to his humanity, but how did it work according to his All we know is that the Bible teaches it, Jesus says it, and somehow it happened, and Jesus experienced the greatest sense of being forsaken of anyone ever. Then the second thing, Jesus says, why? Uh, And and John Piper says this, I think it's incredibly helpful. Piper says that that Jesus, when he says, why is thou forsaken me, quoting this this text, he's not so much asking for something for a theological answer, he's rather expressing just the, the, the absolute sense of loss and agony that he's going through. It's an expression because it's rooted within a psalm that he has prayed and that he has known and understood. And so as he claims it for the beginning, oh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's putting his own experience within the context of this larger story that's been promised in Scripture. And he is insisting that he interprets his own pain and abandonment within that framework. That's what Jesus is doing. It's not so much a question uh, as it is the agony of experience he's going through. And he's locating his experience within the context of this powerful psalm of David that was prophetically telling uh, of what he was going to go through. And then finally, Jesus says this to express that he understands in quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why has you forsaken me? That he's also locating himself with the answer that David found at the end of the psalm. Let's go back and look there at 24. Jesus knows that what he has gone through has a a plan and a purpose. You must know in your suffering, even as you need to know to pray and to remember the good days on the dark days, you have to know that there is a purpose and a plan, even if we don't know it at the moment. The assurance of the psalm is the day will come, whether in this life or the life to come, where we will know that the suffering and the pain that we endured was not pointless but in some way was part of this big mosaic of God's eternal purposes, working out his greater glory in the midst of a world and a life in which we have a real enemy and people who are working in agreement with that enemy, even as we are learning to work in agreement with our Lord. Look at 24. This is the promise for those who suffer. This is the promise that Jesus held on. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. That is horrible and terrible no matter how it happened, no matter if we brought it upon ourselves or it came from others, whether it's, we don't know if we are a little or a, part, or a big part of this thing, the Father sees it. He loves us and he cares for it and he'll honor it and he'll use it, even in our lives and for his ultimate purposes. The Father will not hide his face from me, Jesus says. That's what, in, in quoting that first verse, he's locking himself in, even into this breakthrough that comes in the end. He did not hide his face from me, David says, but heard me, when I cried unto him. Now, I don't know what you're going through. There's two big things here this story, this, this, this morning, that the church wants us to get. Let's be careful that when we have our crosses, as neat as they are, they're, by the way, this is one of the fancier wrapping of a cross I've seen. This particular, I haven't seen this style before. Uh, very nice. But when we have them, we've got to be careful not to make it quaint and cute. Right? The cross really means that we identify with the Savior who's been through it and experienced the greatest kind of pain and abandonment, and he did it for us. 
all right? And the temptation for us is to be amazingly fickle with it, to, to, to say Jesus and, and all the other things, to sing on the good days, but to not walk with him on the dark days. And, and to be still on those dark days of which we have no idea, we've almost lost all perspective, and to be still until we experience his hand taking hold of us. And it, that happens at a place of rest. There's a place at which we somehow just, by his grace, get to some place of stillness in the darkness, and we begin to encounter the Lord coming and, and touching us and leading us by his hand. That's that Isaiah 42, 16. I will take the blind by the hand, and I will show them the way they don't know on paths they don't know. Then I'll turn their darkness to light, and I will make everything that's wrong in their life, I'll fix it, and the crooked way I'll make straight. I will do these things, he says, for my name's sake. Isaiah writes in 42, 16. So we want to be careful not to be fickle. It's a, it's a difficult world. We're, we're happy for all the good days. But Jesus doesn't just rescue us. He walks with us because that's what the Father did for him, number one. Number two, we must interpret our own suffering and pain in the way that Jesus did and the way that David did. It, it, it's impossible to make it in these places and to come out unscathed. I mean, there's scars that we carry, but we can do it in a healthy way in which we get better and better and we heal and we deepen. Uh, the wounds don't ever just close back up as if they didn't happen. But if we, if we work through our grief and our suffering properly, Jesus fills in those gaps. Our heart's been broken and, and never comes back all the way. But, but if Jesus takes up that place, then even the worst and most horrible things teach us to love and to feel and to care uh, and, and, to, and to just really be alive in a different kind of way, having walked in that kind of place with the living God. All right, we want to be people who, as we think this week about Jesus, what he's done, also be aware of our fickleness and also our great need. And some of us were really suffering. And you got to know Jesus did, David did. You're not alone. It feels alone. We're not saying, oh, it's not really that bad. Some of it, it really is that bad. But God's here even in the darkness. So I want to pray for you this morning, particularly if you're going through a season of darkness. Uh, would you stand? We'll let everyone stand, but you know who you are. I don't necessarily, but I want to pray over you now. Lord Jesus, it's so easy for me to be fickle. Lord, to embrace you in all the good things, and healing and deliverance and exorcism and all the fun days. But Lord, I know it's so hard under darkness. In fact, Lord, the lack of faith I have at times, is, it surprises me. It doesn't surprise you, but it surprises me. And I'm so grateful and thankful, Lord, that you're faithful to me even when I'm not faithful to you. And I pray this morning for those who are really being crunched, really hurting, Lord. Uh, their whole world upended, Lord. Don't know how to make sense of things. And uh, Lord, there's so much accusation coming from the demonic and other people Lord, I pray that in this darkness, Lord, that they begin to rehearse and to remember those things which you promised. Lord, if all they can remember is that the, the little cross they got this morning reminds them of a God who absolutely loves them and removed every impediment, every sin, everything that would keep them from the blessing of God, that the cross means that the Father runs to us as we turn to him. Oh, Lord, help us. Let us be a comfort uh, to people who are really struggling, Lord. We pray for refreshment. We thank you, Lord, that in the context of the congregation, David experienced his breakthrough. Lord, I pray 
that this building and this worship that we do together every week, that this would be a place where people would experience their breakthrough. That together we could lay hold of your promises and experience victories that are, are too big to be, to be held onto by one. But together, Lord, uh, we could lay hold of them. So we ask for these things. We say, pour out your spirit here. Make us deep, Lord. Teach us to walk in the deep waters with you and with each other. We ask these things in the most precious and the most holy name, the name of Jesus. And in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven.